what would be something, some characteristic that a base metal play like that would have that would make you invest? Okay, so I just bought one a week or two ago. Thought that was a good time to pick that stock because I thought I got it close to uh, a bottom. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has an excellent shareholder base with Ross Beattie owning 20%, Insiders 5%, and Resource Capital Funds 8%. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-L-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Greetings. This is Mining Stock Education, and I'm Bill Powers. I'm speaking to Joe Mazumdar, the well-respected analyst and newsletter writer with Exploration Insights. And I asked Joe to come back on the show. It's been about five months since he shared with us uh, his insights on the resource sector on this podcast. So, Joe, welcome back to the show. And uh, what's kind of your thoughts with the resource sector right now from the, the supply and demand perspective? Uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. We've, uh, you know, basically turned a corner um, uh, for the good and the bad uh, um, over the last month or so uh, in, in the sector. I mean, the the precious metals sector is looking pretty good uh, uh, with the uh, uh, with the rate cuts uh, and the potential for more rate cuts based on, you know, the the issues with global trade and uh, potentially uh, the tariff issue uh, between the, the two largest economies. And that's basically driving a lot of market uncertainty, having its impact on the equity markets, driving up the volatility index, and then basically moving um, investors into safe haven um, demand um, investments like bonds and also gold. And interestingly, we've also seen uh, a bit of a spike in silver and, and you know dropping this, um, uh, the gold-silver ratio down a bit. So that's helped the precious metal sector. And out of that, over the last three to four months, we've seen, uh, you know, about not quite a billion, 800 million-ish uh, of equity investments, uh, private placements in predominantly precious metal companies. Uh, so the uh, retail sector, at least, uh, has been um, quite uh, bullish uh, uh, on that going into the summer when most people do not uh, are less active in the summer. But um, this summer has not been a normal summer with respect to activity. But that same news flow has had the opposite impact on other commodities um, uh, like, let's say, copper, like zinc uh, and cop, uh, commodities like that. Though equities in that have 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 turned the other cheek with respect to uh, uh, investors. They have basically looked negatively at those metals and positively on the precious metal. When you're looking at investing in, let's say, a copper or a zinc company right now, what would be something, some characteristic that a base metal play like that would have that would make you invest when, you know, copper and zinc, we have seen a pullback in those metals? Okay, so I just bought one um, um, a week or two ago, um, uh, which was a, a, a good jurisdiction. Um, in Alaska, um, uh, the big issues with infrastructure are potentially being resolved. 
with the building of a road. And this is, uh, you know, Trilogy Metals, TMQ on the Toronto and TMQ on the New York um, market. And it actually trades more in the U.S. than it does in Canada. And so what attracted me to this was the valuation. Uh, it had lost about a third of its value um, over the last, um, you know, um, few months. And so I thought it was prime time to pick it up. Um, why I liked it is because it already had a major diversified miner as a potential partner in South 32. And South 32 situation is that they uh, basically spun out of BHP Billiton with no copper assets and not a lot of assets in North America. South 32 was the one that bought uh, Arizona mining for the Taylor Zinc deposit in Arizona. So they're not afraid to do a big acquisition and they did that one at a premium and they paid cash for it. So I'm encouraged by that kind of um, corporate activity. And, um, you know, the project, there's a, an opportunity with a bigger deposit called Bornite, uh, but that would take a longer time to develop. And in the interim, they have a smaller deposit that's 40-ish million tons of high-grade copper, zinc, uh, and precious metals called Arctic that's uh, going to have a, a feasibility study done at the latter part of the year. The big thing coming up for them is drilling. Uh, as well as the record of decision on the road, which probably come in early next year. And so uh, that's why I thought that was a good time to pick that stock because I thought I got it close to uh, a bottom. We've had the issues with copper uh, with respect to um, all the base metals with the tariff, uh, tariff uh, discussions, the tariff war, if you want to call it that. But I know on the supply side, there's not a lot of good copper concentrates coming out. By good, I mean clean. And this looks like a, a decent copper concentrate that they could produce. It's coming from a good jurisdiction, as well as, you know, we've seen what happened at Turquoise Hill with, you know, the delays there, a year and a half, a billion dollars more. And then in China, they might get more restrictive on the, the deleterious elements that go into a copper concentrate. That might restrict more concentrate into China. So if you can pick a good copper concentrate play that uh, produces clean uh, concentrates, safe jurisdiction, good management team, um, undervalued, um, it still makes sense in the base metal sector, especially copper. Because, I mean, the future demand there is really driven by electric vehicles potentially on the on the edge. So um, it's still a market where you could pick up some of those stocks. And, and so I'm still looking at the sector and, and uh, recently I acquired one. Uh, in, in the copper sector. And I should say Trilogy is a sponsor of this podcast, and I had no idea that Joe was going to share that. A zinc company, uh, Tinker Resources, one that you covered in your letter previously, I was looking at this. This has seen a steep sell-off. What's your analysis of a company like this now where it's it's been sold off and one could argue that this could be a value play from here on out, or at least right now? Okay, so Tinker Resources uh, is a company we owned uh, in Exploration Insights, uh, you know, good management team geologically had a few hiccups with the capital markets in terms of raising money to fund their Iowilka project. We did well on that uh, originally. Um, unfortunately, I didn't sell when I should have. But, uh, you know, we easily made more than a double on that uh, because they actually had an exploration find in South I Iowilka. So they were finding higher grade than was in the original resource. And they put that together and, and it was looking really good. 
The problem was the zinc market started declining. Uh, you know, it looked like there was more production coming on. And so the need for new development projects was, you know, falling down in terms of demand. And usually what you want is for one of these development projects or exploration projects is to get taken out because, you know, the management teams of these kind of companies aren't the ones that are going to fund, develop, and build and operate one of these zinc mines. And you want somebody else to come in. And so the potential for our exit strategy, which would have been an acquisition, was was diminishing because of the overall zinc market. And then when they put out the scoping study, you know, uh, uh, people got to realize that, you know, zinc projects do not produce zinc cathode. And so even though we like to look at the zinc price, the real issue is their ultimate product is a zinc concentrate. Their zinc concentrate uh, had a lot of iron in it. And, you know, when you look at the iron, you could say, oh, that's, you know, whatever, $7.50, maybe a dry metric ton and a penalty. That just plop that on to the, uh, to the cash flow, and there you go. But the problem is that when you have too much concentrate in the market, those kind of concentrates, they don't want in that kind of volume because uh, they don't want the kind of iron. So it limits where it can go. And they found that they couldn't process everything in Peru, which would have been a cheaper alternative. And then they had to send stuff to China and, uh, you know, in terms of the scoping study level, that cost a lot more in transportation and drove the prices up. So if you do have a project in the zinc market or the copper market or any market that's unloved and it's a development project, you want to just make sure that that project, when it comes out, that's going to be a lower quartile project that anybody who's producing must have because it would be better than what they currently hold. Um, so that's real, and, and that project in terms of where it was looking in terms of a cash cost was not falling down, uh, like falling into the lower quartile in terms of being an exceptional deposit at that point. But it could potentially be a good optionality play with a rising zinc price. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if we have a turnaround in the zinc market, that's definitely, you know, zinc pounds in the ground. Uh, but what we would need to see as well is, is um, you know, less concentrate supply. So we need to see those treatment charges come down and smelters sort of saying that they're demanding more concentrate such that they would take these iron-rich uh, zinc cones. What's your thoughts on the trade war, uh, Joe, here with between the U.S. and China? And how is that escalating trade war affecting how you're positioning your resource stock portfolio? Well, uh, impacting it greatly. I mean, the thing is that uh, before that, precious metals weren't looking all that great. I mean, they were looking okay with respect to the um, the, um, the rate cuts, but some of the, uh, the rate cuts were hard to justify based on the low historic unemployment rates you know, the inflation being below the Fed's target. So it was really touch and go whether the Fed would actually leave rates untouched. But the U.S. president wanted to keep pushing for lower rates as well as there was this idea, and continues to be, uh, that because of the global trade tensions that that would create some more uncertainty globally that could impact the U.S. economy such that it might be better to keep rates the same or lower them. And so the more that we have 
with respect to trade tensions, you know, issues with Brexit and other issues globally that could impact the U.S. economy. The idea is that one of the solutions, you know, good or bad, is to uh, lower the rates. That helped gold in terms of weakening the U.S. dollar and making that rise. But the trade wars, you know, boosted the idea that there might be more rate cuts to come because the global uncertainty increased. But it lowered the base metals and other commodities because, you know, the, the trade war was between one of the largest demand centers for commodities, China. So if you, you know, slow the growth there, you slow the growth and demand for metals. And so that actually had a negative impact on part of our portfolio, had a positive impact on the other part. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. When I email you, you're often in different uh, locales, and you were, when I asked for this interview last week, you were uh, on a site visit. You Perhaps you go to more site visits than any other newsletter writer. Since we last talked five months ago, are there any jurisdictions that you've encountered firsthand that have really caught your attention? Well, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if I talked to you before I went to Japan, because uh, Japan was a jurisdiction I went to, I'm not sure if it was April or May, all the months. Sort of I think we talked in March, out. if I recall. Okay, I can't remember if I talked about it, but that's a jurisdiction that's opening up. It's taken two or three years for people like Japan Gold and Urban Resources to get in there and start accumulating land packages. Uh, Japan Gold recently raised money. They're still in a, you know, one of these known brokered financing. They're raising money to expand their land package in, uh, in Japan. Urban Resources got that injection of capital from uh, Newmont Gold Corp to help it uh, fund drilling at the Omu Gold Project there. So we're seeing, I mean, it's not a big island, but what strikes me is when you go to Japan or you think about Japan, you think of a country with a very high density with respect to people everywhere, but outside of the central part of the island of Honshu, where Tokyo is, you go into the islands in Hokkaido or in Kyushu, where I went, there's not that very many people and there's not a lot of work. And so uh, I think the, the, the government there is thinking, you know, how can we get people to populate these areas? How can we maintain industry? You know, and one of the solutions, potential solutions is mining. I mean, I don't think there's going to be a lot of big open pit mining there, but high grade underground like they're already doing at Hishikari. Um, and these are what's termed low sulfidation epithermal veins um, that have very low tonnage but very high grade. 
So that's the sort of thing that people are looking for in Japan. And so that's an interesting jurisdiction, you know, first world country um, and, you know, the potential for uh, 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 good pre- uh, precious metals deposits, just like the ones that already existed and previously were mined back um, um, uh, before the end of World War II. Um, so that was an interesting jurisdiction um, uh, that we basically added to our portfolio. Mm-hmm. I'm meeting with Jap- the management of Japan Gold Corp at Beaver Creek, so I'll be interested to learn more about their story. Uh, I don't know much about Japan as a mining jurisdiction. When it comes to gold mining in Japan, do you know offhand how many million ounces they produce a year as a country? They don't produce a lot. I, I think Hishikari is the only mine that's producing, and it may be producing a couple of hundred thousand ounces a year, but that's a couple of hundred thousand ounces that are grading almost an ounce per ton. You know, so these kind of small high grade deposits, small moving tonnage, but still big with respect to ounces, uh, are what people are looking for there. You know, and these are close to surface. Uh, you know, they're not ridiculously deep. Um, you know, these are young systems. Like geologically, Hishikari, the area that it's hosted, the volcanics, is, is only a million years old, which is quite young for, uh, for these types of deposits. When you look uh, over your performance this year in your portfolio, uh, would you mind sharing with us your biggest winner or one of your biggest winners? I mean, one of our biggest winners was, uh, is actually a, a, an Australian play called Gold Road. Uh, and Gold Road has got a joint venture with uh, Goldfields on a uh, project that they found, a deposit they found five years ago. So it's quite a fascinating story of somebody that's gone from soup to nuts, basically, into their first pour uh, in only five years and have managed all the, you know, the management changes, the, the structure, you know, the, the change of focus incredibly well. Uh, there's not a lot of companies that can do this, but they went from the discovery five years ago to uh, finding, uh, you know, taking it to a feasibility study, finding a partner for it, Goldfields, that's basically operating it. So they de-risked all that execution risk by bringing on their own people and trying to develop themselves by bringing in a partner that's already built mines in Western Australia. And so they've got that 50-50 joint venture with a known operator they continue to explore on their own ground, but really what was driving that you know, increase in valuation was because of the weakening of the Australian dollar and the increase in the local Australian dollar uh, gold price, which is now, you know, it's almost historic levels. It's well over $2,000 per ounce uh, Australian. And, and what's good about that as well is because these other commodities are suffering a bit. We're not seeing the same kind of boom we've seen before in other mining sectors or even in the oil and gas or the LNG sector, such as there's not a lot of push on uh, cost inflation for labor, which is great because they can manage their margins better. And, you know, when the gold price get, goes up, they can, they can keep a lot of that increase in margin. So that stock has done very well, a combination of the weakening Australian dollar, a, you know, plus great execution on, on, you know, basically getting this thing into production from, uh, from a discovery five years ago, um, and a great jurisdiction in, in Western Australia. So that, 
that that combination has you know generated a very decent return. Yeah, and as you said to me uh, pre-recording, it's been the perfect storm for gold in Australia. So that uh, that perfect storm external to this stock surely helped it. Oh yeah, I mean uh, uh, that that has been very good. And the other issue, um, you know, another stock that that's done very well is, is, is discovery related, which would have been Radius Gold. Uh, which intersected, you know, a high-grade gold-silver intersection in Mexico. Uh, and um, this area of Mexico is part of the Sierra Madre belt. I mean, they did a joint venture, which wasn't probably the greatest joint venture with respect to terms, but it was a time of the market where there was not a lot of equity financings available, and so a lot of companies had to do what they had to do. So they did a deal with Pan American Silver, they're operating the joint venture. They drilled um, a great hole, um, uh, and um, that stock has performed well on the back of that. And so discovery, you know, in any part of the cycle, drives a lot of shareholder value, and, 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 and that radius did it for us. What's interesting in this area is the Sierra Madre belt, the gold-silver belt in Mexico, is quite, um, you know, um, it's got a lot of mines on it. The, there's a little bit of there's an area there where there's not a lot of mining there, and that's an area that has had security issues, you know, historically because of the opium trade. Uh, and this area was one of the centers for opium production, but since opium prices have collapsed due to synthetic opioids coming from you know Asia and other places into the United States. There's no, not much opium or no opium production, basically, in these areas because it doesn't make any money. And so that's opened up the opportunity for companies to actually come in and do that exploration that they've never had the opportunity to do because of the high security risk. And Radius is one of those ones that, you know, have, have come in early into that area. And so that's a bit of a dynamic change in that part of Mexico. But saying that, Mexico has got other issues in terms of I've heard this from a few companies, is uh, in terms of permitting or getting more ground because the local government is pushing back, saying you've got enough ground, spend money on that ground, and um, you know don't ask for more claims because you guys are basically just holding claims. That's their opinion. So right now, most people that are exploring there already have ground or are making deals with local property owners rather than staking new prospects and so that might have some impact on exploration in mexico uh going forward so even though we have exposure to mexico i'm not going out of my way to you know increase that right now that's interesting so you're saying that the resistance uh, politically is coming more from the local level rather than the more leftist government at the federal level in mexico no, I, I would say it's coming more from the federal level that they're saying that you've got enough ground and stuff like that. So the companies have had to say, okay, the people that already hold the ground but hold it, you know, privately, those are the ones they negotiate with. Okay, they've already got the claim and they've got the standing and stuff like that, as opposed to staking new ground. It's getting uh, harder. I read an article earlier this week. It was quite a long article, and it talked about the idea of peak gold which you know about this topic, declining reserves, declining grades. We've seen this over the last 20 years. Do you think that this idea that we could reach peak gold production is legitimate? Uh, no. And so the issue becomes, I mean, when reserves were actually going up, 
uh, as gold prices were going up is because we were lowering the grade. As we increase the reserve prices, we could take more marginal ounces and call them economic. So as we, let's say we raise our, you know, reserve prices to $1,500, suddenly there's a lot of marginal ounces that are uneconomic at 1250 suddenly become economic. And we know that, you know, over the last three years, as miners became more concerned about free cash flow than production, we saw them write off a lot of ounces. Those ounces could theoretically come back into the market, into their fold, if the gold price goes up and they feel justified in raising their reserve prices. So the ounces are there right now, they're just not economic. When they become economic because of a increase in gold price, then those ounces come back on their books. So I don't buy that argument because there's a lot of ounces that have been quote unquote undiscovered, but are uneconomic that are out there. Some of them already exist within the portfolios of big companies that we've seen and they've written off. Those, you know, they could be tens of millions of ounces that are already sitting there waiting to be actually put back on the balance sheet. This question has to do with harnessing and releasing uh, the creativity and the concepts that geologists on, I would assume, particularly exploration companies have. I was at the Sprott Conference uh, recently, and on one of the panels, Robert Friedland was speaking as a mining entrepreneur, and he was talking about how you know, the geologist idea need to be funded. They need to have some freedom and financing to go test these theses. And uh, I gave you the gist of the idea. I'm not quoting him exactly. And then I was recently talking in the last few days to a, a Vancouver broker who has been at this for many decades. And he was saying to me, uh, basically, you have to be very careful with your geos when you're an early stage exploration company to make sure that they don't drill you out of business. Uh, what's your thoughts on this? What is the balance when it comes to this? Well, the thing is that with, with, uh, with some companies, with major companies, um, they have bigger budgets for exploration. I mean, I'm granted some of these budgets have been uh, decreasing, hence a lot of their private placements into juniors to basically be a proxy for their own exploration programs. But those budgets are basically dictated by, okay, I've got this theory. This is how I want to test it. This is how much money I need to test it. The biggest savings in any exploration program is trying to get to know quicker and not making the project a, uh, a uh, sort of lifestyle. So you're talking about the same project for about 10 years with the same company drilling the same holes. That's not exploration. You know, that's just basically funding a lifestyle. That's the kind of thing your broker friend uh, is probably complaining about. Uh, the other issue is that, um, you know, in terms of thinking outside the box and being able to do things that some people won't fund, that's probably the issue Mr. Freeman was talking about, because there are geologists in big companies that want to test ideas, like maybe with a deep hole, maybe in an area that no one's been before, just a conceptual deposit that, hey, this could be a carlin or this could be a porphyry deposit something like that whereas the the uh, the company doesn't want to fund it because it's too risky 
you know, and uh, maybe even the market doesn't want to fund it. So somebody who's got the capital to realize the risk reward, knowing the geologists, knowing the work they do, knowing how much you know, knowledge they have of these systems and what they look like and the science behind it, then you sort of put your faith in that and say, yeah, I'll fund it. There's less and less of that happening uh, because we're very short term on, on the retail side and as well as on the industry side. You know, what is, what's that drill hole say? Okay, it's dead. Let's go. But don't you think it takes like a mining entrepreneur, like a Friedland who's had success and has resources, it might be easier for him to say something like that than, you know, the, the team that's on their first or maybe second discovery only? Well, even if, even if you have one discovery, um, uh, that's a good thing. And uh, the market may fund you again. The problem would be more those people that have never had one uh, to give them money to find that first one. Uh, they would, might have a little bit more trouble and they might need somebody like a Friedland or an Eric Sprott or someone to, to, to put in the money to help them. Um, the companies have become less risk takers on exploration because their, most of their budgets, especially in the gold sector, has been about brownfields, about conversion about being close to the plant and less about grassroots. And hasn't more drilling been spent on developmental projects uh, of recent than even exploration oh, yeah. projects? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying is, is that they look at the risk reward ratio and say, well, that drilling is going to convert into a resource that'll convert into a reserve, which will feed this plant. You know, I would rather the money went into that than finding or, you know, looking for something that doesn't have a plant that doesn't, uh, you know, that's in the middle of nowhere. But realizing that, you know, the reason that a lot of those mines that those guys are talking about already that they're spending the brownfield money on were actually grassroots discoveries. It's not like they were mines for a million years or anything like that. Right. Somebody actually found it, you know, so I remember like when I was, uh, you know, working for a big gold company, it was, it, it amazed me that, you know, 20 years ago, they actually found these deposits, but they were against funding exploration. So I thought, well, that doesn't make much sense. If, you know, you're actually making money off of the shoulders of these people that found the deposits and now going forward, you don't want to fund them anymore. You know, so you you have to fund exploration, but you also have to fund it to a point where you keep the exploration budget constant. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. It just has to be a constant number. That way, everybody knows what that number is, and there's a discipline in how you spend the capital in that exploration budget. Because the idea is to prioritize and to say which is the best target, and that target that's the best should always get the money. You know, and the ability of an exploration geologist to basically say at one point, you know what, we're good. I don't, you know, I tested my theory. There's nothing there. Let's put that money into something else. That and not, not consider that project to be a lifestyle project. In, in the sense, like this is my project. I want to drill it to the nth degree. You know, uh, maybe it's time to just let go. And what's your thoughts on proof of concept drilling? You know, you get these development projects that are development projects for two decades and nobody funds them. What's that balance between a management team saying we've drilled enough, now we got to find a buyer for this project? 
the thing is, the thing is that uh, what, what we've got happening with respect to uh, that issue is that you, you get into the, an issue where you're drilling it and you're not drilling, you know, to delineate the resource anymore. You're drilling it to categorize it from inferred, maybe to indicated, to measured, to build it up. You're de-risking it. And, and the retail market doesn't really pay for that. You know, um, you can you funding that kind of de-risking infill drilling is not something that moves uh, a junior miner. You know, what moves a junior miner is finding that new area, doing a big step out hole. That's really what moves it. But that infill drilling and metallurgical tests are necessary to prove to the potential buyer that yes, this could be economic in the future. Yes, absolutely. For a takeout, you know, in the end, that's exactly what you want to do. And if the market isn't there, uh, you know, you want to address the potential suitor, which is the person that's going to buy your project or the person that's going to do a strategic financing. You want to answer their questions. And, you know, three months when there was no financing, uh, you want to be uh, looking and talking to those people. But if the market turns and the money is now coming from the retail sector, suddenly you're answering their questions. You're saying, okay, I guess we're going to do more step-out holes and we're going to do this. I'm not going to spend money on metallurgy right now, you know, that sort of thing. It all depends who you're getting the money from, what kind of catalysts are going to drive your share price up because we tend to be a little bit um, short-term. There's about four and a half months left in 2019. Joe, as we conclude, what final advice uh, would you like to share with my listeners and uh, what's your outlook for the remaining four and a half months? Well, I would say basically no matter what happens with respect to the base metal sector, the precious metal sector with the trade war, currency war, global tensions, what have you, you know, 24-7 market is that exploration would still in any commodity, commodity agnostic, would still drive shareholder value. So that's still a big part of what we do. But saying that with the precious metal sector, if you do think that this is a really good time to be in it, which we do, then your early returns would come from more liquid producers in the sector. Um, The silver uh, addition would be something to look for because it looks like um, silver is now becoming more of a, a, a metal that people are attracted to. So that's something else that's happening. But I would continually watch the other commodities. If you can find something that's lower quartile that's sitting there and is undervalued, and you could sit on it for a couple of years, that might be worth doing. You've been listening to Joe Mazimdar, lead analyst, with along with Brent Cook over at Exploration Insights. To learn more about Joe's service, go to explorationinsights.com. As always, Joe, I appreciate your insights. Thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education. Thanks, Bill. This episode of Mining Stock Education is brought to you by U.S. Gold Corp. U.S. Gold Corp. is a U.S.-focused gold exploration and development company advancing high-potential projects in Wyoming and Nevada. U.S. Gold Corp. has consolidated a district on Nevada's productive Cortez trend and is advancing the Copper King project towards production in Wyoming. Led by a team of prolific company builders and renowned explorers, including Dave Matthewson, who's directly responsible for several major Nevada gold discoveries. U.S. Gold Corp. is well-financed and has an extremely tight share structure with less than 20 million shares outstanding and it trades on a major stock exchange the nasdaq under the ticker usau to learn more go to usgoldcorp.gold that's usgoldcorp.gold
Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.